Section 16 of Tanglewood Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Liz Devins. Tanglewood Tales by Nathaniel Hawthorne. The Golden Fleece. Part 2. This enterprise, you will understand, was, of all others, the most difficult and dangerous in the world. In the first place, it would be necessary to make a long voyage through unknown seas. There was hardly a hope or a possibility that any young man who should undertake this voyage would either succeed in obtaining the Golden Fleece, or would survive to return home and tell of the perils he had run. The eyes of King Peleus sparkled with joy, therefore, when he heard Jason's reply. "'Well said, wise man,' with the one sandal cried he go then and at the peril of your life bring me back the golden fleece i go answered jason composedly if i fail you need not fear that i will ever come back to trouble you again but if i return to iokos with the prize then king peleus you must hasten down from your lofty throne and give me your crown and sceptre that i will said the king with a sneer meantime i will keep them safely for you the first thing that Jason thought of doing, after he left the king's presence, was to go to Dodona and inquire of the talking oak what course it was best to pursue. This wonderful tree stood in the center of an ancient wood. Its stately trunk rose up a hundred feet into the air, and threw a broad and dense shadow over more than an acre of ground. Standing beneath it, Jason looked up among the knotted branches and green leaves, and into the mysterious heart of the old tree, and spoke aloud as if he were addressing some person who was hidden within the depths of the foliage. "'What shall I do?' said he, in order to win the golden fleece. At first there was a deep silence, not only within the shadow of the talking oak, but all through the solitary wood. In a moment or two, however, the leaves of the oak began to stir and rustle, as if a gentle breeze were wandering amongst them, although the other trees of the wood were perfectly still. The sound grew louder and became like the roar of a high wind. By and by, Jason imagined that he could distinguish words, but very confusedly, because each separate leaf of the tree seemed to be a tongue, and the whole myriad of tongues were babbling at once. But the noise waxed broader and deeper, until it resembled a tornado sweeping through the oak, and making one great utterance out of a thousand and thousand of little murmurs, which each leafy tongue had caused by its rustling. And now, though it still had the tone of a mighty wind roaring among the branches, it was also like a deep bass voice, speaking as distinctly as a tree could be expected to speak, the following words, "'Go to Argus, the shipbuilder, and bid him build a galley with fifty oars.' Then the voice melted again into the indistinct murmur of rustling leaves, and died gradually away. When it was quite gone, Jason felt inclined to doubt whether he had actually heard the words, or whether his fancy had not shaped them out of an ordinary sound made by a breeze while passing through the thick foliage of the tree. But on inquiry among the people of Iokos, he found that there was really a man in the city by the name of Argus, who was a very skillful builder of vessels. This showed some intelligence in the oak, else how should it have known that any such person existed? At Jason's request, Argus readily consented to build him a galley so big that it should require fifty strong men to row it. 
although no vessel of such size and burden had heretofore been seen in the world. So the head carpenter and all his journeymen and apprentices began their work, and for a good while afterwards there they were, busily employed, hewing up the timbers and making a great clatter with their hammers, until the new ship, which was called the Argo, seemed to be quite ready for sea. And, as the talking oak had already given him such good advice, Jason thought that it would not be amiss to ask for a little more. He visited again, therefore, and standing beside its huge, rough trunk, inquired what he should do next. This time there was no such universal quivering of the leaves throughout the whole tree as there had been before, but after a while Jason observed that the foliage of a great branch which stretched above his head had begun to rustle, as if the wind were stirring that one bough, while all the other boughs of the oak were at rest. "'Cut me off,' said the branch, as soon as it could speak distinctly. "'Cut me off. Cut me off and carve me into a figurehead for your galley.' Accordingly, Jason took the branch at its word and lopped it off the tree. A carver in the neighborhood engaged to make the figurehead. He was tolerably good workman, and had already carved several figureheads in what he intended for feminine shapes, and looking pretty much like those we see nowadays, stuck up under a vessel's bowsprit, with great staring eyes that never wink at the dash of a spray. But, what was very strange, the carver found that his hand was guided by some unseen power, and by a skill beyond his own, and that his tools shaped out an image which he had never dreamed of. When the work was finished, it turned out to be the figure of a beautiful woman, with a helmet on her head, from beneath which the long ringlets fell down upon her shoulders. On the left arm was a shield, and in its center appeared a lifelike representation of the head of Medusa, with the snaky locks. The right arm was extended, as if pointing onward. The face of this wonderful statue, though not angry or forbidding, was so grave and majestic that perhaps you might call it severe, and as for the mouth, it seemed just ready to unclose its lips, and utter words of deepest wisdom. Jason was delighted with the oaken image, and gave the carver no rest until it was completed, and set it up where a figurehead has always stood, from that time to this, in the vessel's prow. "'And now,' cried he, as he stood gazing at the calm, majestic face of the statue, "'I must go to the talking oak and inquire what to do next.' "'There is no need of that, Jason,' said a voice which, though it was far lower, reminded him of the mighty tones of the great oak. When you desire good advice, you can seek it of me. Jason had been looking straight into the face of the image when these words were spoken, but he could hardly believe either his ears or his eyes. The truth was, however, that the oaken lips had moved, and, to all appearance, the voice had proceeded from the statue's mouth. Recovering a little from his surprise, Jason bethought himself that the image had been carved out of wood of the talking oak, and that, therefore, it was really no great wonder, but on the contrary, the most natural thing in the world, that it should possess the faculty of speech. It would have been very odd indeed if it had not. But certainly it was a great piece of good fortune that he should be able to carry so wise a block of wood along with him in his perilous voyage. "'Tell me, wondrous image,' exclaimed Jason, "'since you inherit the wisdom of the speaking oak of Dodona, whose daughter you are,' Tell me, where shall I find fifty bold youths, who will take each of them an oar in my galley? They must have sturdy arms to row, and brave hearts to encounter perils, or we shall never win the golden fleece. Go, replied the oaken image, 
go summon all the heroes of Greece. And, in fact, considering what a great deed was to be done, could any advice be wiser than this which Jason received from the figurehead of this vessel? He lost no time in sending messengers to all the cities, and making known to the whole people of Greece that Prince Jason, the son of King Jason, was going in quest of the fleece of gold, and that he desired the help of forty-nine of the bravest and strongest young men alive, to row his vessel and share his dangers, and Jason himself would be the fiftieth. At this news the adventurous youths all over the country began to bestir themselves. Some of them had already fought with giants and slain dragons, and the younger ones, who had not yet met with such good fortune, thought it a shame to have lived so long without getting astride of a flying serpent, or sticking their spears into a chimera, or at least thrusting their right arms down a monstrous lion's throat. There was a fair prospect that they would meet with plenty of such adventures before finding the golden fleece. As soon as they could furbish up their helmets and shields, therefore, and gird on their trusty swords, they came thronging to Iolcos, and clambered on board the new galley. Shaking hands with Jason, they assured him that they did not care a pin for their lives, but would help him row the vessel to the remotest edge of the world, and as much farther as he might think it best to go. Many of these brave fellows had been educated by Chiron, the four-footed pedagogue, and were therefore old schoolmates of Jason, and knew him to be a lad of spirit. The mighty Hercules, whose shoulders afterwards upheld the sky, was one of them, and there were Castor and Pollux, the twin brothers, who were never accused of being chicken-hearted, although they had been hatched out of an egg, and Theseus, who was so renowned for killing the Minotaur, and Lynceus, with his wonderfully sharp eyes, which could see through a millstone, or look right down into the depths of the earth, and discover the treasures that were there, and Orpheus, the very best of harpers, who sang and played upon his lyre so sweetly that the brute beasts stood upon their hind legs and capered merrily to the music. Yes, and at some of his more moving tunes the rocks bestirred their moss-grown bulk out of the ground, and a grove of forest-trees uprooted themselves, and nodding their tops to one another, performed a country dance. One of the rowers was a beautiful young woman named Atalanta, who had been nursed among the mountains by a bear. So light a foot was this fair damsel that she could step from one foamy crest of a wave to the foamy crest of another, without wetting more than the sole of her sandal. She had grown up in a very wild way, and talked much about the rights of women, and loved hunting and war far better than her needle. But in my opinion, the most remarkable of this famous company were the two sons of the North Wind, airy youngsters, and of a rather blustering disposition, who had wings on their shoulders, and in case of a calm, could puff out their cheeks, and blow almost as fresh a breeze as their father. I ought not to forget the prophets and conjurers, of whom there were several in the crew, and who could foretell what would happen to-morrow, or the next day, or a hundred years hence, but were generally quite unconscious of what was passing at the moment. Jason appointed Typhus to be helmsman, because he was a star-gazer, and knew the points of the compass. Lincius, on account of his sharp sight, was stationed at the lookout in the prow, where he saw a whole day sail ahead, but was rather apt to overlook things that lay directly under his nose. If the sea only happened to be deep enough, however, Lincius could tell you exactly what kind of rocks or sands were at the bottom of it, and he often cried out to his companions that they were sailing over heaps of sunken treasure, which yet he was none the richer for beholding. To confess the truth, few people believed him when he said it. 
Well, but when the Argonauts, as these fifty brave adventurers were called, had prepared everything for the voyage, an unforeseen difficulty threatened to end it before it was begun. The vessel, you must understand, was so long and broad and ponderous that the united force of all the fifty was insufficient to shove her into the water. Hercules, I suppose, had not grown to his full strength, else he might have set her afloat as easily as a little boy launches a boat upon a puddle. But here were these fifty heroes, pushing and straining and growing red in the face, without making the Argo start an inch. At last, quite wearied out, they sat themselves down on the shore exceedingly disconsolate, and thinking that the vessel must be left to rot and fall into pieces, and that they must either swim across the sea or lose the golden fleece. All at once Jason bethought himself of the galley's miraculous figurehead. O daughter of the talking oak, cried he, how shall we set work to get our vessel into the water? Seat yourselves, answered the image, for it had known what ought to have been done from the very first, and was only waiting for the question to be put. Seat yourselves, and handle your oars, and let Orpheus play upon his harp. Immediately the fifty heroes got on board, and seizing their oars, held them perpendicularly in the air, while Orpheus, who liked such a task far better than rowing, swept his fingers across the harp. At the first ringing note of the music they felt the vessel stir. Orpheus thrummed away briskly, and the galley slid at once into the sea, dipping her prow so deeply that the figurehead drank the wave with its marvellous lips, and rising again as buoyant as a swan. The rowers plied their fifty oars, the white foam boiled up before the prow, the water gurgled and bubbled in their wake, while Orpheus continued to play so lively a strain of music that the vessel seemed to dance over the billows by way of keeping time to it. Thus triumphantly did the Argo sail out of the harbor, amidst the huzzas and good wishes of everyone except the wicked old Peleus, who stood on a promontory scowling at her, and wishing that he could blow out his lungs the tempteth of wrath that was in his heart, and so sink the galley with all on board. When they had sailed above fifty miles over the sea, Lincius happened to cast his sharp eyes behind, and said that there was this bad-hearted king, still perched upon the promontory, and scowling so gloomily that it looked like a black thundercloud in that quarter of the horizon. In order to make the time pass away more pleasantly during the voyage, the heroes talked about the golden fleece. It originally belonged, it appears, to a Boeotian ram, who had taken on his back two children when in danger of their lives, and fled with them over land and sea as far as Colchis. One of the children, whose name was Heli, fell into the sea and was drowned, but the other, a little boy named Phrixus, was brought safe ashore by the faithful ram, who, however, was so exhausted that he immediately lay down and died. In memory of this good deed, and as a token of his true heart, the fleece of the poor dead ram was miraculously changed into gold, and became one of the most beautiful objects ever seen on earth. It was hung upon a tree in a sacred grove, where it had now been kept, I know not how many years, and was the envy of mighty kings, who had nothing so magnificent in any of their palaces. If I were to tell you all the adventures of the Argonauts, it would take me till nightfall, and perhaps a great deal longer. There was no lack of wonderful events, as you may judge from what you have already heard. At a certain island they were hospitably received by King Sisius, its sovereign, who made a feast for them, and treated them like brothers. But the Argonauts saw that this good king looked downcast and very much troubled, and they therefore inquired of him what was the matter. 
King Sisius hereupon informed them that he and his subjects were greatly abused, and incommoded by the inhabitants of a neighboring mountain, who made a war upon them, and killed many people, and ravaged the country. And while they were talking about it, Sisius pointed to the mountain, and asked Jason and his companions what they saw there. "'I see some very tall objects,' answered Jason, "'but they are at such a distance that I cannot distinctly make out what they are.' To tell your majesty the truth, they look so very strangely that I am inclined to think them clouds, which have chanced to take something like human shapes. I see them very plainly, remarked Lincius, whose eyes, you know, were as far-sighted as a telescope. They are a band of enormous giants, all of whom has six arms apiece, and a club, a sword, or some other weapon in each of their hands. You have excellent eyes, said King Sisius. Yes, they are six-armed giants, as you say, and these are the enemies whom I and my subjects have to contend with. The next day, when the Argonauts were about setting sail, down came these terrible giants, stepping a hundred yards at a stride, brandishing their six arms apiece, and looking formidable so far aloft in the air. Each of these monsters was able to carry on a whole war by himself, for with one arm he could fling immense stones, and wield a club with another, and a sword with a third, while the fourth was poking a long spear at the enemy, and the fifth and sixth were shooting him with a bow, an arrow, but luckily, though the giants were so huge, and had so many arms, they had each but one heart, and that no bigger nor braver than the heart of an ordinary man. Besides, if they had been like a hundred armbriarius, the brave Argonauts would have given them their hands full of fight. Jason and his friends went boldly to meet them, slew a great many, and made the rest take to their heels, so that if the giants had had six legs apiece instead of six arms, it would have served them better to run away with. Another strange adventure happened when the voyagers came to Thrace, where they found the poor blind king named Phineas, deserted by his subjects, and living in a very sorrowful way, all by himself. On Jason's inquiring where they could, they could do him any service, the king answered that he was terribly tormented by three winged creatures called harpies, which had the faces of women, and the wings, bodies, and claws of vultures. These ugly wretches were in the habit of snatching away his dinner, and allowed him no peace of his life. Upon hearing this, the Argonauts spread a plentiful feast on the seashore, well knowing, from what the blind king said of their greediness, that the harpies would snuff up the scent of the victuals, and quickly come to steal them away. And so it turned out, for hardly was the table set, before the three hideous vulture-women came flapping their wings, seized the food in their talons, and flew off as fast as they could. But the two sons of the north wind drew their swords, spread their pinions, and set off through the air in pursuit of the thieves, whom they at last overtook among some islands, after a chase of hundreds of miles. The two winged youths blustered terribly at the harpies, for they had had rough temper of their father, and so frightened them with their drawn swords that they solemnly promised never to trouble King Phineas again. Then the Argonauts sailed onward and met with many other marvelous incidents, any one of which could have made a story by itself. At one time they landed on the island and were reposing on the grass when they suddenly found themselves assailed by what seemed a shower of steel-headed arrows. Some of them stuck in the ground, while others hit against their shields, and several penetrated their flesh. The fifty heroes started up, and looked about them for the hidden enemy, but they could find none, nor see any spot on the whole island where even a single archer could lie concealed. 
Still, however, the steel-headed arrows came whizzing among them, and at last, happening to look upward, they beheld a large flock of birds, hovering and wheeling aloft and shooting their feathers down upon the Argonauts. These feathers were the steel-headed arrows that had so tormented them. There was no possibility of making any resistance, and the fifty heroic Argonauts might all have been killed or wounded by a flock of troublesome birds without ever setting eyes on the Golden Fleece if Jason had not thought of asking the advice of the oaken image. So he ran to the galley as fast as his legs would carry him. "'O daughter of the speaking oak!' cried he, all out of breath. "'We need your wisdom more than ever before.' We are in great peril from a flock of birds, who are shooting us with their steel-pointed feathers. What can we do to drive them away? Make a clatter on your shield, said the image. On receiving this excellent counsel, Jason hurried back to his companions, who were far more dismayed than when they fought with six-armed giants, and bade them strike with their swords upon their brazen shields. Forthwith the fifty heroes set heartily to work, banging with might and main, and raged such a terrible clatter that the birds made what haste they could to get away, and though they had shot half their feathers out of their wings, they were soon seen skimming among the clouds, a long distance off, and looking like a flock of wild geese. Orpheus celebrated this victory by playing a triumphant anthem in his harp, and saying so melodiously that Jason begged him to desist, lest, as the steel-feathered birds had been driven away by an ugly sound, they might be enticed back again by a sweet one. End of Part 2 The Golden Fleece